Welcome back, Emmy Brainiacs. Talking about Chapter 10. Not much to say about Long Ago and Far Away. The discussion prompt was this. I would love to know more of the neighbor's story. What mistakes did he make that led him to take his life? I mean, the mistakes were sort of explained, but uh, from an outsider's point of view who doesn't really know what happened. Um, but it would be cool to live out that story through that f- the other family's point of view. Because it does sound like it was an interesting one. Happy-go-lucky guy takes his life. Then suddenly it's revealed that he had all this debt. <clears throat> and his family is, <clears throat> you know, appalled. Excuse me. I've got a bit of a thing in my throat right now. Anywho, that was the discussion prompt. And the discussion went like this. Nothing. <laughs> no one had any comments. So if you don't mind my saying... This is chapter 11, and it goes like this. When standing by the front gate of our home, we looked out to the north over the level plain and let our eyes rove west from the tall Lombardi poplars of Casa Antigua. They presented rested on another pile or island of trees, blue in the distance, marking the site of another Estancia house. This was the Estancia called La Tapera with whose owner we also had friendly relations during all the years we lived in that district. The owner was Don Gregorio Gandal, a native and like our nearest English neighbour, Mr. Royd, an enthusiast and was always also like him in being the husband of a fat, indolent wife who kept parrots and other pet animals and the father of two daughters. In this case, too, there were no sons. There, however, all resemblance ceased, since two... Men more unlike in their appearance, character and fortune, it would be not easy to find. Don Gregorio was an extraordinary person to look at. He had a round and barrel-shaped body, short bow legs and a big round head, which resembled a bowl fashioned out of a block of dark-coloured wood with a coarse human face and huge ears rudely carved on it. He had a curly head and a crisp dark hair growing as knobs, which gave his round skull the appearance of being embossed like the head of a curly retriever. The large brown eyes were extremely prominent with a tremendous staring power in them, and the whole expression was one of toad-like gravity, but he could laugh on occasion, and his laugh to us children was the most grotesque and consequently the most delightful thing about him. Whenever we saw him ride up and dismount, and after fastening his magnificently Caparazoned horse to the outer gate, come in to make a call on our parents, we children would abandon our sports or whatever we were doing and joyfully run to the house. Then distributing ourselves about the room on chairs and stools, sit silent and meek, listening and watching for Don Gregorio's laugh, we talked in a startlingly emphatic way, almost making one jump when he assented to what was being said with his loud sudden C-C-C-C-C. And when he spoke, bringing on his sentences two or three words at a time, sounding like angry barks and by and by, something would be said to touch his risable faculties, <clears throat> which would send him off in a sort of fit. And throwing himself back in his chair, closing his eyes and opening wide his big mouth, he would draw his breath in with a prolonged wailing, sibilant sound until his lungs were full, too full to hold any more, and it would then be discharged with a rush accompanied by a sort of wild animal scream, something like the scream of a fox. 
Then instantly, almost before the scream was over, his countenance would recover in preternatural gravity and intense staring attention. Our keen delight in this performance made it actually painful since the feeling could not be expressed since we knew that our father knew that we were only too liable to explode in the presence of an honoured guest and nothing vexed him more. While in the room we dared not change glances or even smile but after seeing and hearing their wonderful laugh a few times we would steal off and going to some quiet spot sit in a circle and start imitating it finding it a very delightful pastime. <clears throat> After I'd learnt to ride, I used sometimes to go with my mother and sisters for an afternoon's visit to La Tapera. The wife was the biggest and fattest woman in our neighbourhood and stood a head and shoulders taller than her barrel-shaped husband. She was not like Donna Mercedes, a lady by birth, nor an educated person, but resembled her in her habits and tastes. She sat always in a large cane easy chair, outdoors or in, invariably with four hairless dogs in her company, one on her broad lap, another on a lambskin rug at her feet and one on rugs at each side. The three on the floor were ever patiently waiting for her respective turns to occupy the broad, warm lap when the time came to remove the last favoured one from that position. I had an invincible dislike to these dogs with their skinny, shiny, sorry, blue, black, naked skins like the bald head of an old negro and their long white scattered whiskers. These white stiff hairs on their faces and their dim blinking eyes gave them a certain resemblance to very old ugly men with black blood in them and made them all the more repulsive. The two daughters, <clears throat> both grown to womanhood, were named Marcelina and Demetra, the first big brown jolly and fat like her mother, the other with better features, a pale olive skin, dark melancholy eyes and a gentle pensive voice and air which made her seem like one of a different family and race. The daughters would serve mate to us, a beverage which, as a small boy, I did not like, but there was no chocolate or tea in that house for visitors, and in fruit time I was always glad to get away to the orchard. As at our own home, the old peach trees grew in the middle of part of the plantation, the other parts being planted with rows of Lombardy poplars and other large shade trees, a tame ostrich, a rear was kept at the house, and as, as long as we remained indoors or seated in a veranda, he would hang about close by, but would follow us as soon as we started off to the orchard. <clears throat> he was like a pet dog and could not endure to be left alone or in the uncongenial company of other domestic creatures, dogs, cats, fowls, turkeys and geese. <coughs> he regarded men and women as the only suitable associates for an ostrich, but was not allowed in the rooms on account of his con inconvenient habit of swallowing metal objects such as scissors, spoons, thimbles, blodkins, a couple of coins, and anything of the kind he could snatch up when no one was looking. In the orchard, when he saw us eating peaches, he would do the same, and it, if he couldn't reach high enough to pluck them for himself, he would beg of us. It was great fun to give him half a dozen or more at a time, then, when they had been quickly gobbled up, which watched their progress as a long row of big round lumps slowly travelled down his neck and disappeared one by one as the peaches passed into his crop. Gandara's great business was horse breeding, and as a rule he kept about a thousand brood mares, so that the herd usually numbered about three thousand head. Strange to say, they were nearly all piebalds. The gaucho, from the poorest worker on horseback to the largest owner of lands and cattle, has 
or had in those days a fancy for having all his riding horses of one colour. Every man, as a rule, had his trapilla, his own half a dozen or a dozen or more saddle horses, and he would have them all as nearly alike as possible, so that one man had chestnuts, another browns, bays, silvers or iron greys, duns, fawns, cream noses, or blacks or whites or piebalds. On some estancias the cattle too were all of one colour, and I remember one estate where the cattle numbering about 6,000 were all black. Our neighbour's fancy was for piebald horses, and so strong was it that he wished not to have one, any one coloured horse in his herd, despite the fact that he bred horses for sale, and that piebalds were not so popular as horses of a more normal colouring. He would have done better if, sticking to one colour, he had bred iron greys, cream noses, chestnuts or fawns or duns, all favourite colours, or better still if he had not confined himself to one any one colour. The stallions were all piebalds, but many of the brood mares were white, and he had discovered that he could get as good, if not better, results from keeping white as well as piebald mares. Nobody quarrelled with Gandara on account of his taste in horses. On the contrary, he and his vast parti-coloured herds were greatly admired, and his ambition to have a monopoly of piebalds was sometimes the cause of offence. He sold two-year-old geldings only, but never a mare unless for slaughter, for in those days the half-wild horses of the pampas were annually slaughtered in vast numbers just for the hides and grease. If he found a white or piebald mare in a neighbour's herd, he would not rest until he got possession of it, and by giving double its value in money or horses, he seldom found any difficulty in getting what he wanted, but occasionally some poor gaucho would only... A few, with only a few animals, would refuse to part with a piebald mare, either out of pride or cussedness, as an American would say, or because he was attached to it, and this would stir Gandara's soul to its deepest depth and bring up all the blackness in him to the surface. What do you want, then? he would shout, sitting on his horse and making violent gestures with his right hand and arm, barking out his words. Have I not offered you enough? Listen, what is a white mare to you? So you a poor man, more than a mare of any other colour. If your riding horses must be of one colour, tell me the colour you want. Black or brown or bay or chestnut or what? Look, you shall have two young, unbroken geldings of two years in exchange for the mare. Could you make a better exchange? Were you ever treated more generously? If you refuse, it will be out of spite. And I shall know how to treat you. When you lose your animals... And are broken when your children are sick with fever, when your wife is starving, you shall not come to me for a horse to ride on, nor for money, nor meat, nor medicine, since you will have me for an enemy instead of a friend. That, they say, was how he raged and bullied when he met with a repulse from a poor neighbour. So fond was Don Gregorio of his piebalds that he spent the greatest part of every day on horseback with his different herds of mares, each led by its own proud piebald stallion. He was perpetually waiting and watching with anxious interest for the appearance of a new foal. If it turned out not a piebald, he cared nothing more about it, no matter how beautiful in colour it might be, or what good points it had, it was to go as soon as he could get rid of it. But if a piebald, he would rejoice, and if there was anything remarkable in its colouring, he would keep a sharp eye on it, to to find out later perhaps that he liked it too well to part with it. Eventually, when broken, it would go into his private trapilla. And in this way, he would always possess three or four times as many saddle horses as he needed. 
If you met Gandhara every day for a week or two, you would see him each time on a different horse, and every one of them would be more or less a surprise to you on account of its colouring. There was something fantastic in his passion. It reminds one of the famous 18th century Miller of New Haven, described by Mark Antony Lower in his book about the strange customs and quaint characters in the Sussex of old days. The miller used to pay weekly visits on horseback to his customers in the neighbouring towns and villages. His horse, originally a white one, having been painted some brilliant colour, blue, green, yellow, orange, purple or scarlet. The whole village would turn out to look at the miller's wonderful horse and speculate as to the colour he would exhibit on his next appearance. Gandara's horses were strangely coloured by nature, aided by artificial selection, and I remember that as a boy I thought them very beautiful. Sometimes it was a black or brown or bay or white or a chestnut, or a silver grey, or strawberry, red and white, but the main point was the pleasing arrangement and shading of the dark colour. Some of his best selected specimens were iron, or blue-grey, or white. Others, finer still, fawn and white, and dun and white, and the best of all, perhaps, white and a metallic tawny yellow, the colour the natives call bronze or brassy, which I never see in England. Horses of this colour have the ears edged and tipped with black, the muzzle, fetlock's mane, and tail also black. I do not know if he ever succeeded in breeding a tortoiseshell. Gandara's pride in the horses he rode himself, the rare blooms selected from his equine garden, showed itself in the way in which he decorated them with silver headstalls and a bit, and the more and the whole gear sparkling with silver, while he was careless of his own dress, going about in an old rusty hat, unpolished boots, and a frayed old Indian poncho or cloak over his gaucho garments. Probably the most glorious moment of his life was when he rode to a race meeting or cattle marking or other gathering of the gaucho population of the district, when all eyes would be turned to him on his arrival. Dismounting, he would hobble his horse, tie the glittering reins to the back of the saddle and leave him proudly champing his big native bit and tossing his decorated head while the people gathered round to admire the strangely coloured animal as if it had been a pegasus just alighted from the skies to stand for a while, exhibiting itself among the horses of the earth. My latest recollections of La Tapera are concerned more with Demetria than the piebald. She was not an elegant figure, as was natural in a daughter of the grotesque Don Gregorio, but her countenance, as I have said, was attractive on account of its colour and gentle, wistful expression, and being the daughter of a man rich in horses, she did not want for lovers. In those far-off days, the idle, gay, well-dressed young gambler was always a girl's first and often most successful wooer, but at La Tepera, the young lovers had to reckon with one who, incredible as it seemed in a gaucho, hated gambling and kept a hostile and rather terrifying eye on their approaches. Eventually, Demetra became engaged to a young stranger from a distance who had succeeded in persuading the father that he was eligible as a person and able to provide for a wife. Now it happened that the nearest priest in our part of the country lived a long distance away, and to get to him and his little thatched chapel one had to cross a swamp two miles wide in which one's horse would sink belly deep in a merry hole at least a dozen times before one could get through. In these, these circumstances, the Gandara family could not go to the priest, but managed to persuade him to come to them, and as La Tapera was not considered a good enough place in which to hold so important a ceremony, my parents invited them to have the marriage in our house. The priest arrived on horseback about noon on a sultry day, hot and tired and well splashed with dried mud, and in a rather bad temper. It must have been also 
must have also gone against him to unite these two young people in the house of heretics who were doomed to a dreadful future after their rebellious lives had ended. However, he got through with the business and presently recovered his good temper and grew quite genial and talkative when he was led into the dining room and found a great wedding breakfast with wine in plenty on the table. During the breakfast, I looked often and long at the faces of the newly married pair and pitied our nice gentle Demetria and wished she had not given herself to that man. He was not a bad-looking young man and was well-dressed in the gaucho costume, but he was strangely silent and ill at ease the whole time and did not win our regard. I never saw him again. It soon came out that he was a gambler and had nothing but his skill with a pack of cards to live by, and Don Gregorio, in a rage, told him to go back to his native place. And go he did very soon, leaving poor Demetra on her parents' hands. Shortly after this unhappy experience, Don Gregorio bought a house in Buenos Aires for his wife and daughters so that they could go and spend a month or two when they wanted a change, and I saw them on one or two occasions when in town. He himself would have been out of his element in such a place, shut up in a close room, or painfully waddling over the rough boulder stones of the narrow streets on his bow legs. Life for him was to be on the back of a piebald horse on the wide green plain, looking after his beloved animals. And that's chapter 11. Nicely done. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.